Need a voice? I'm your guy. SteveWebVoiceOvers.com LifeSpring number 180. Celebrating four years with Jesus Music Pioneer Chuck Gerard. LifeSpring Media. Bringing the message of hope, love, and good news since 2004. Thanks for your support. And now, on with the show. All right. How could that be? Unbelievable. So I'm sitting there this uh, well, a couple of days ago, writing out the show, editing and things like that, and it occurred to me, golly, Miss Molly, this is going to be the four-year anniversary on this show. If you are listening to this show on November 13th, 2008, <laughs> it was four years ago today that the very first LifeSpring went out. As a matter of fact, I don't think the first show was even called LifeSpring. It came from my little church in Riverside, California, called at the time Calvary Temple, and I think I just said from Calvary Temple, Riverside, California. I don't think it was until show number two that I used the the, uh, title LifeSpring. But be that as it may, we're not going to spend a lot of time reminiscing. Uh, We've done that on previous shows. We've done that on previous times. So that's not really what this show is all about. But I guess since this is the first time we've had a fourth anniversary on the LifeSpring show, it's uh, somewhat momentous. Uh, I'm really glad that you're there listening. I got to say that. I'm so thankful. But I'll be talking to you about that at the end of the show. And if you looked at your... uh, uh, player, whether it's on your computer or your iPod or other MP3 device, you can see that this is going to be a bit of a long show, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time in introduction, other than to say, yes, I think it's pretty uh, appropriate, I guess, that we're talking to Chuck Gerard. You know, I've talked to some of the pioneers of the contemporary Christian music scene. I talked to Brian Duncan, as you know, several times. He was there near the beginning. I talked to Scott Wesley Brown. He was there near the beginning. I've talked to others who were there near the beginning. But Chuck Gerard was there at Ground Zero. They didn't even call it contemporary Christian music when he started. It was just called Jesus Music. And since, uh, well, you know, I'm not here to blow my own horn, but I'll, I'll just mention that LifeSpring, uh, you know, we're celebrating the fourth year, and LifeSpring was the very first Christian podcast that was not based on repurposed church sermons. Uh, if you want to know the whole story, just go to LifespringMedia.com, and you'll see the uh, picture of your host, Steve Webb, who happens to be me, at the top of the page. And just click where it says his story, and you can read all about it. So we don't need to take a lot of time there. But yeah, so uh, four-year anniversary and uh, the first Christian podcast. And we're talking to really the guy that was there at Ground Zero, like I said, for Jesus Music, Chuck Gerard, And that's what that's all about. Let me just mention real fast, thank you so much to you. If you are a supporter of LifeSpring in terms of giving monthly gifts, that's great. I appreciate it. I really can't do it without you. But I also want to thank CovenantEyes.com accountability software. If you need help in controlling some of the internet surfing urges that uh, plague some people, Covenant Eyes has got a great tool. Check it out at CovenantEyes.com and you can get 30 days free uh, to check them out if you'll use the promo code LifeSpring. But before we get into the interview, let me just say that uh, as I talked to Chuck on the uh, kind of the pre-conversation on the phone, I asked him, I, I told him what to expect. I said, I, I'd just like you, Chuck, to talk a little bit about the history 
um, of uh, you know your 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 story, how you got into Christian music, and golly, I found out that. Chuck goes back even beyond the beginning of Jesus' music, and I'll just let him tell the story. I was raised in a uh, nominal Christian background, didn't really have any feeling of connection with God. It was very legalistic, and um, I became disenchanted with it in my mid-teens. In the mid-teens, I discovered, uh, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to where my, my story kind of parallels to almost the history of rock and roll. And, uh, you know, as I was coming into music, musical consciousness, uh, rock and roll was just in its infancy with doo-wop and, you know, the early kind of rockabilly kind of stuff that started out being rock and roll. And uh, I was really captivated by this, what I considered to be a new sound, and um, decided that I wanted to be involved in that somehow. And um, so in my high school years, I, well, first of all, I kind of rejected my whole, I kind of got ahead of myself a little bit. I rejected my whole religious experience, and I I just kind of felt like um, a lot of condemnation from it, and I felt like I should just get out and see the world because I was felt I felt condemned because of the legalistic rulings of the church that I belonged to. Right, and you just didn't feel like you could uh, go along with the program. Well, to be very frank, it was Catholic, and at that time, you know, things like eating meat on Friday were mortal sins that could send you to hell, and I thought, well, if I'm going to hell for eating meat, I might as well go find some chicks and some booze, you know, (laughs) (laughs) really make it worth my while to go to hell, (laughs) and that was really my my thought, you know, and uh, I don't really always like to identify the church, but I think it makes the story more real and interesting, and I'm not down on Catholics, I'm just saying that my particular experience with Catholicism was very legalistic and not really a born-again experience for me. Right. So uh, I went. I kind of lost myself in the rock and roll world and the beginning of it. And I start. I started a little doo-wop group in high school, and um, we met a local DJ and got um, some contacts. Went down to Hollywood with a little demo that we made, and we got a, a contract. Uh, this is the early days. It was a little more simple then, and uh, just by knocking on doors, we could get a uh, an audience with you know the A and R man or the president of the label. And it wasn't like today where you'd have to go through all this protocol to even get to somebody. Sure. Well, back in and, the day, uh, they were just really, I think, thirsty for content, right? I mean, they figured, golly, we got Elvis going here, and every the the kids. This is what the kids want to listen to, so let's give it to them. I'm sure there was an element of that. I don't know. It was a climate, though, where it was, you know, it was still kind of in its early days, its pioneering days, and it wasn't as as, as high tech and business like as it is today. Okay. So it was a little easier to get a get a, a meeting with someone, that type of thing. So anyhow, we got signed to Era Records. Uh, they had at that time a uh, couple of chart records. They were fairly hot, as we might say, with a song called uh, "Wayward Wind." They'd had. Donnie Brooks' Mission Bell was out about the same time. Strong. 
some songs that some folks might remember, Birds and the Bees by Jewel Akins. That was the label. And so uh, our first record came out and went to Bubbling Under on the on the Billboard charts, which is when you almost make the charts, but not quite. Okay. And then the second record went top 20. So all of a sudden, I we had a measure of success. We were hearing our song on the radio, and it was an you know incredible, heady, uh, intoxicating experience. And within a couple of years, uh, I was on stage with some of the people that were my idols, uh, uh, actually doing concerts with people like Jerry Lee Lewis. And Jackie Wilson. My heart is crying, crying. Lonely teardrops. My pillow never drops. Lonely teardrops. time that they would be the the legends of rock and roll they were no just kidding. the guys that were hot at the time you know sure. now you're how old at this time i'm about 19 okay 18 19 something like that i'm and in so, my senior year of high school all right so you're still and, going to uh, high school at the time you're still going to school yeah i was actually i barely finished my senior year <laughs> still doing some road gigs and all that but i did finish and uh, not at the top of my class but i finished <laughs> okay that was like the beginning of my, you know, that gives you a little taste of success, which kind of keeps you in the, in the loop for quite a while because, uh, that, that doesn't go away very quick. But in fact, it stays with you your whole life. You know, they just, you just have a little bit of a success making music and it's kind of what you want to do the rest of your life. Sure. Now the first top 20 hit that you had was sacred, correct? Right. That must have been just been incredible to you to have that kind of success. I mean, as a 19-year-old, 18-year-old kid. Well, it was. And anybody that says that hearing their record on the radio is not a big deal is, is really lying. I mean, <laughs> I don't care how big you are. I think even if you're, you've had 50 hits, the new record comes out and, you know, it's on the radio. And it's right. a fantastic feeling. So, yeah, it was, you know, for a young kid from a kind of basically a farm country, a farm area of, of Northern California, it was, it was a big deal for me. And uh, so after the, the Castells, uh, you know, had a, a couple of hits and, and um, that was sort of the end of that era. But in the meantime, uh, what we, there was a, an event that everyone did for promotion that was called a sock hop. Mm-hmm. And it was an event where the local radio station would put it on, in my case, Los Angeles and KRLA, which was is now a news station, but was one of the big rock stations, and some of the big name DJs and all would come together, and they were really more the headliners, the DJs were, yeah. and then the acts would come to promote their record, and all we did was lip sync. Uh, we didn't actually sing, we'd just play the record, and you'd just be there, <laughs> and the kids would come, and they'd get to see their favorite artists, but we'd just be lip syncing. Yeah. 
wasn't no big controversy about that in those days. Right. And uh, so through that, there was a local group in L.A. that uh, was one of the first Hot Rod records ever out uh, called the, the Four Speeds, uh, and their record was uh, RPM. Usher was the leader of that group, and so I met Gary at one of these sock hops, and Gary, uh, was, we just got to talking, and Gary said, uh, well, you know, I'm doing a lot of recording, and I'm looking for singers. Would you want to be a part of this, the, the group that does regular session work? And I was a little reticent because I was signed to a, a label, and I thought it was maybe a breach of contract, so I had my cautions about it, but I, you know, wanted to check it out, so I, I told him, sure, I'd come check it out, and I went couple of sessions the first session i did i sang background on a dick dale record hmm. and uh one thing led to another and brian wilson got involved because he was one of gary's best friends and was a co-writer with gary on a, a couple of songs where gary was a co-writer with brian more accurately right on the song in my room and a couple of others that appeared on some beach boys albums There's a So um, I had met Brian already, but uh, this was an opportunity to work with him. Sure. And um, So anyhow, that was the beginning of, of a uh, about a four-year stint as a studio singer with, and musician with, with Gary Usher projects that were basically just studio guys that got together and would put these records together under different names. Sometimes we wouldn't, we wouldn't even know what the name of the group was going to be until <laughs> the record was released. I remember those records well. Yeah, well, you know who was really big on that was Ron Dante. Uh, he he had groups like the Fruit Gum Company, Yummy Yummy, and, yeah. and the Archies, and it was kind <laughs> of a trendy thing in several circles at that time. And um, so we were the studio crew for Gary and uh, did a lot of Hot Rod Surf records, and one of the albums that we did was for Nick Vinay, who had actually been the, the A&R man at Capitol that had sort of, quote, discovered or produced the first Beach Boy album. He was working for Mercury Records at the time, and um, he commissioned Gary to do an album. So we did this album. We didn't even know what the name of the group was going to be. We were told it was either going to be the Rising Suns or the Hondells, but it was Nick's call. So we delivered the album, and usually what would happen is we'd deliver the album and forget about it because you'd never hear about it again. But a few weeks later or a few months later, I'm driving down the street, and I hear this song come on the radio, and I recognized it kind of I thought oh Beach Boy song I, I know that song and all of a sudden I realized it was my version <laughs> of Little Honda on the radio it's more fun than a barrel of monkeys that you will buy we'll ride on out of the town to any place I know you'll lie first year it's alright so I called up Gary and I said what's up I think I just heard our song on the radio and he said yeah it's just really doing well. It's climbing up the charts, blah, 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 blah. So 
that became a hit, and um, I was not actually in the public performing group of the Hondells. I was making a lot of money in studio work, and I was alcoholic. I was enjoying my life going to the bars and shooting pool after a day in the studio and making pretty good money for a young guy my age. This is already after Castell, so by this time I'm about 22, 23 years old. Okay. So I was never in the group that even appeared in the movies, but it's my voice that appears in the in the hot, the surf movies, and then Dick, uh, another guy, Dick Burns, Richard Burns, would lip sync my voice. And, Interesting. Uh, so I never did the public appearances, but I did all the studio work up until uh, the first two albums and all the movie work, and then later on they formed their own identity and they had their own band and they made some other recordings later on. Right. It now, really didn't do much. Let's talk a little bit about the business end of that. Uh, that was so early on. Are, are you getting or were you getting any uh, residuals uh, from, no, from was, any of that stuff? I was strictly work for hire. All right, mm-hmm. so every time that was performed later on, it was like, well, th- there I am, but uh, yeah, didn't mean anything for the uh, pocketbook. Okay, all right. Well, it doesn't even, even you know, I, it was interesting because a few years back I was approached by KTEL uh, to do a Castells uh, retrospective, which was like really amazing to me. I thought, wow, who knows about the Castells? Yeah, right. uh, they said, well, we get a lot of requests and we want to do a thing. And so I supplied them with the... Uh, the 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 vinyl that I had and they cleaned it up on computer programs sure. and basically I helped them with the release that I knew I'd never make a penny from because the catalog was bought by KTEL and the contracts were void so uh, lots of people do that and uh, don't really get paid you know we just figured it was to preserve the work it was worth it and uh, so I don't make any royalties off that either so really? just kind of the way it goes in the record business but. yeah well, that is nice, though, to still be able to have it in the, the public, well, not public domain in the legal sense, but just be able to still have it out there. Yeah. So that's cool. Well, yeah, I mean, you can go on Amazon.com and put in Castells, and there's a couple of versions of the of the best of. That's kind of nice, you yeah. know, that it's out there. You right. Know? Yeah, very cool. So that was like after the Castells with the Hondells and all that and the hot rod thing, and then that was leading into the drug thing. And, uh, I became curious about all the different drugs and um, started to smoke marijuana, which replaced kind of my alcohol addiction because I thought, wow, what have I been wasting my time with alcohol for? This is even better. Mm-hmm. And then because of the publicity on the on the, the hippie movement, I got really curious about the psychedelics, and eventually I scored some LSD and I took my first LSD trip and it was everything I had hoped it would be Hmm. which was not a good thing Mm -hmm. and uh, I got totally into it for about four years and became one of the real hippies Um, uh, over the four year period of time I took about 500 LSD trips I got connected with a group of, of like-minded hippies, and we, we were a little bit unusual in the fact that we were really spiritual seekers. And I used to think that every hippie was a spiritual seeker because of the spiritual element of the psychedelic drugs. But yes. I found out that a lot of them were just tripping and having fun, and even if they were hardcore, they weren't really into God, but right. we were. Right. And there were a lot of, of hippies that were. I mean, I was, I was just a tiny bit young to really be Im- immersed in that. 
But there were a lot of people talking about, you know, TM and, and you know, finding God and all this stuff. And so, Well, a lot of them were, they were it was trendy, and yeah. it brought spirituality to the forefront, but there wasn't, a, I didn't find in my experience, there were a lot of them that were really serious about actually digging in to find God. Right. I think that is is not completely accurate, because that's, those were the people that actually became the element of the Jesus movement, which we'll get into in a minute. Yeah. So probably my perception was wrong, but... But around me, a lot of people were just thrill-seekers, and they'd talk TM, and they'd talk Eastern philosophies, because that was what George Harrison was talking exactly. about or whatever, right. but weren't really that serious in my view. Right. Okay. But we were, and we formed a little hippie commune, and we, uh, we actually lived together at different places, and uh, we were studying the Bible and dropping acid and going out in nature and trying to find God different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, reading all the Timothy Leary books and the mm-hmm. Korean Gospel and the Urantia book and the whole thing, trying to piece it together. And um, I came to kind of a crossroads. Uh, I started out with this philosophy that, well, I found truth, and truth is in a lot of different philosophies. And mm-hmm. if truth is truth, it has to line up. So if I can just get myself into a, a, a plane of existence, it wasn't through taking more drugs. I didn't feel that. But I felt like if I could get myself spiritually refined enough to kind of look at everything from a kind of a, a, a perspective where I could look down on it all and see the harmony of it that I could see the, you know, the harmony in all truth. Okay. Well, that works quite a ways. Uh, you know, every religion will agree that it's better to love your brother than kill him, for instance. But when it came to Jesus, there was this huge stumbling block. Yep. And I saw the difference of opinion about who Jesus was in these different religions that were too widely disparate, too widely separated to actually ever have harmony. You can't have harmony with the Christian religion that says Jesus is God and the second person of the Holy Trinity with another religion that says Jesus isn't divine, he was just a wise man for his era, whatever. You know? Right, right. So I had to deal with Jesus, and I think it's interesting that so so often in the Bible Jesus calls himself the rock of offense, and I come to divide, not yep. to, you know, different things. Well, that's exactly what happened with me. Right. So I started to eliminate as best I could the one the, the philosophies that didn't answer the deepest and inner questions. I still, because of my Catholic background, I had a lot of fear of hell, the doctrines of hell, and I didn't even know if God was a person yet, but mm-hmm. uh, for sure. But I kind of felt like if there's a hell, I don't want to wake up and find I'm there, just because I believe there wasn't one, you know. So as I was beginning to read the Bible, I ran across, didn't even know what a promise was, but... It was the simple little statement in Matthew that says, if you seek, you will find. Mm -hmm. If you knock, the door will be opened unto you. And I thought, okay, that makes sense. And I kind of made this deal with God. I said, okay, if you're truly there, you're personal, and you're honest, all the good things that I'm told you are, then if I do everything I can to find out who you are and define you, then if I can't find you, it's your problem, not mine. Uh So as I continued to press into these different philosophies and religions, uh, one by one, they they didn't really answer those questions about hell and future. And the, the biggest difference that I saw between Christianity and and the other religions were that uh, the other religions were working towards some sort of a goal where you worked by steps, almost like a video game, and conquered the levels. Yeah. Where Christianity was saying you need to just release it all and surrender to Jesus. Well, I didn't really know the gospel yet, but that was sort of a, a revelation I had later when I did hear the gospel. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, reading the Bible, blah, blah, the whole thing, eliminating it all, and becoming what I'd call mostly Christian toward the end of the, of the, the quest. If, in the late 1960s, when you, around 1969, just before we got born again, and I was born again in February of 70, 
if you just asked me in like December of 69, what's your religion? I'd say, well, mostly Christian. Well, you know, you can't be mostly Christian, <laughs> yeah. but being mostly a human. Right. And uh, so, uh, but that was my idea was that, you know, I'm, I'm leaning toward Christianity and I'm not quite there. And uh, so then we started to hear, uh, by this time now, we'd, we'd gone through several uh, nomadic transitions. We had moved to Hawaii for a while. We thought it was going to be the New Jerusalem, and then we, uh, one of my my uh, friends moved to Salt Lake City. Jay Truax, who later on became the bass player in Love Song, yep. he formed a band there that became very popular, and I went to Salt Lake and lived there for a year. But we wound up back in Laguna Beach, and we were a kind of a interesting breed of hippies. We were hippies with a little bit of money <laughs> because we had we could put bands together. There was about eight or eight to ten people in this communal living situation all musicians, and we'd put these bands together and work in nightclubs, so we were bringing home paychecks, and we lived actually pretty well up on the hillside in South Laguna Beach, overlooking the ocean. We're doing okay from that standpoint, but we were very miserable at the same time. We were kind of at the end of this whole drug quest. By this time, too, I'd faced a couple of arrests, and I was actually facing trial in Las Vegas, Nevada. All this is pressing in on me, and it's God's hand on me, you know, kind of pressing me to make this final step. Sure. So we're living in this kind of idyllic situation on the hill in South Laguna Beach overlooking the ocean, but we're miserable and wondering what the next step is. And all of a sudden we start to hear about this place called Calvary Chapel. Well, it's not known yet. It's not like a popular or famous church yet. It's just a bunch of hippies pick up a hitchhiker along Pacific Coast Highway and, you know, they start talking about Calvary Chapel. Have you guys heard about Calvary Chapel, man? That's our church. You know, hippies are getting saved there. God's moving. This was even before the tent, probably. Oh, way before the tent. Yeah. yeah this was this was in the little chapel in uh, Greenville and Sunflower. So Okay, yeah. In Santa Ana. So, um, well, we better check this out. So the first thing we did, well, we started to hear about Calvary and then, uh, one of the main ways that we got really connected was we were having a stone Bible study one night in Laguna Beach, and we got into this big hassle. We were reading in the New Testament, and we came across the doctrine of speaking in tongues. Can you imagine that being controversial? <laughs> and um, we, it started this argument, and we couldn't, you know, I'd, I'd had some experiences with kind of rambling in tongues during being stoned and playing music, and it had created evil feelings, and I didn't think it was a good thing, and I wondered why it was even in the Bible. Uh So it created this big question, and we decided, well, there's a bunch of Christians down in Newport Beach that live in this motel that's kind of a Christian commune. Let's go down and ask them about this. So we drove the 15 miles down to Newport Beach from Laguna, and uh, what it was was this was a a motel complex, one of those one-story kind of L-shaped things, you know, called the Blue Top was its nickname because it had a blue roof. We knew that they that there were hippies that were Christians that lived there, and so we went up to unit number one, I think, or whatever it was, the closest one when we parked the car, and we knocked on the door, and these hippies answered the door, and, uh, you know, I, I like to imagine the scenario. They were probably, it was about 7 o'clock at night, so they probably just finished their meal, and they're having evening prayer. Lord, send more lost souls like ourselves <laughs> that we might witness, you know, and then the door knocks, and we yeah. knock on the door, and... Here's five stone hippies with a Bible in their hand asking them about tongues. So that's kind of uh, surrealistic right no there. But, uh, <laughs> but they loved on us, and they invited us to go up to church. And the first time that I went up, I believe I went up alone, and uh, I was really, really wary of it. I was down on Christianity because of my earlier experience. I was not up for this, but I felt like if I'm going to be a real open-minded seeker, I better get after this because... Um, 
I need to check it out. Mm-hmm. And at the very worst case, I can chalk off Christianity forever and then continue on. Right. But God had other ideas, and um, I went in, and I, I just had a, a, an epiphany, a, a powerful experience. I walked into the place, and uh, it was just filled with the power of God, and I recognized that that power was stronger than any acid trip I've ever taken, and it just bowled me over, and God began to deal with me. I was sitting in the back. I wasn't even in the front, Mm -hmm. and God began to deal with me, and I began to weep, and just it wasn't even really about the message. I don't remember even what was preached. I just remember the, the feeling of God's presence and the, yep. the worship. And it wasn't even worship the way we define worship today. It was basically just a bunch of hippie kids getting up on a stool singing their songs. And yeah. it was all deeply affecting me. And God was just totally reaming me, you know, inside and out. Sure. And um, so I, I kind of, that was, I believe, probably my moment of when I became born again, although I didn't go to the front that night to do any kind of uh, altar call uh, response, but uh, I just sort of made a a deal again with God, and I said, uh, I said, well, this seems, this is, this is pretty heavy. I got to deal with this, and uh, so in the interest of our contract to seek and I will find, I'm here for the duration until you show me different, and either there's another level or whatever it is. You know, my attitude was, if God's in one religion, I want that religion, if he's in five religions, I want all five. Sure. If he's not in any religion at all, I don't want religion. I just want God. And uh, so, so you that really, was like, so you really were seeking him out of the truth of your spirit. I mean, you were really, truly seeking him. Truly was, and, yep. and it really wasn't through the intervention of man at that point, other than the hippies that we picked yeah. up at that point. Yeah, it was all a drawing of the spirit, much, pretty much with the rest of the fellows too, because. You know, ironically or by divine coincidence, they all got saved within about a three-week radius, hmm. a three-week uh, span of each other. Yeah. And uh, so now we're all saved, or a bunch of us. Not everybody in the house got saved, but the, the core group, the right. four or five guys that ultimately became Love Song. Right. And uh, we started to go to Bible studies and be faithful, and there was a study every night at Calvary. There was something going on, so mm-hmm. we were there all the time, and whenever we could, we'd go to church and a young hippie preacher uh, named Lonnie Frisbee, who was the first hippie convert at Calvary Chapel, mm-hmm. began to notice our coming all the time and questioned us about it. He said, what's what's up with you guys? You know, I see you all the time. You're always here together. And we said, well, we're a band. And uh, he said, oh, well, what kind of music do you play? And we said, well, we're rock and roll guys, but uh, we've written these songs about Jesus. And he said, well, let's hear them. So we went out, got our guitars, brought them in, and played some of the songs that we'd written that we were actually singing in nightclubs. And the Jesus in nightclubs in between Proud Mary and Knock on Wood and all that. Really? So how was that received? Well, it was a spiritual time, like you say, and uh, it was kind of a, it was a way of witnessing. People would hear these songs in these nightclubs, and then we'd take breaks. It was the blind leading the blind, mm-hmm. and we were very evangelistic, and we would talk about getting people turned on to acid and finding God. It was mainly about Jesus, so mm. it was kind of really a strange mix of spirituality and, and error and the 
deception and the whole thing, but yeah. but our hearts were honest, you know, and we weren't trying to see, deceive anybody, but we just thought we'd found something good and we wanted to share it. So at the time then, you were still dropping acid. Yeah, well, uh, by the time that I got to Calvary, I'd had a, a very negative acid experience in Salt Lake City about a year earlier, uh, where um, it's kind of hard to explain to someone who's never been in this place, but it's kind of like if, the way, only way I can explain it is if, if you were insane and you believed that the room you were sitting in was uh, a cave and you really believed that, then it's a cave to you. Now everybody else says, no, it's a room, mm-hmm. but you think it's a cave. Well, this was the kind of reality that I had. And when I, I rambled off in the woods, we were all out in a place called Cottonwood Canyon in Salt Lake City. A bunch of hippies dropped acid. And the consciousness of any other human being was pulled from me, and I felt completely alone and without God in the universe for mm-hmm. as long as I could stand it, which God knew I probably couldn't stand it very long. Mm-hmm. And it was so horrifying, it was about as close to hell as I could ever imagine getting. Complete loneliness, complete aloneness, complete dark. Well, it wasn't physically dark, but spiritually dark. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I felt like the the voice of God said, if you continue this, you will die. And I knew that he didn't mean physically, that he meant spiritually. So all Mm -hmm. this was happening in this experience. And when I came back out, I started to hear voices funnel in again to my consciousness and uh, went and found my people again, and that was my last acid trip. That's, it, it's sort of, um, if you pardon me, it scared the hell out of me, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. I mean, literally. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, in the f- true meaning of the word there, um, right, right. not as a swear word. I but, understand. Uh, so that was the last acid trip. So then during the Laguna, the last year in Laguna, uh, I had, you know, narrowed it down to hashish and marijuana were the acceptable drugs for that last year. So that's kind of where my drug life was at at that point when I got saved. Okay. So about a week after we got saved, I'm kind of backtracking on the story a little bit. Um, a bunch of hippies came up that had, we were getting more free drugs. You know, the devil was supplying us. He knew we'd gotten born again and I knew I shouldn't take drugs, but I, you know, someone would knock on the door and say, hey, man, the Colombian gold, you know, this stuff comes through once every five years. It's the best in the world. Hey, you guys want a free lid? You know, <laughs> you know, so, oh, well, I'll quit drugs next yeah, week. You know, right. I can't, you know, so that went on for a while. And finally, we realized we had to move out of Laguna Beach. And someone had given us a little, uh, a room above their garage where we could stay. It had no plumbing, no insulation. It was just this bare bones room. And mm. we moved in there okay. and the ones of us that had got born again and uh, we lived there for about a year and uh, maybe not quite a year maybe six months and then another family in the church said that they wanted to be our surrogate mom and dad and they brought us into their home and they uh kind of supported us for a year wow. while we got on our feet so where was this uh costa mesa costa california mesa. okay mm-hmm. yeah dean and jean gilbert bless their hearts and uh back to this kind of the chronology of the story now. So yeah. Lonnie, he hears our music and he really thinks it's great and he wants Pastor Chuck to hear it. So he sets up a meeting and we, um, we meet with Chuck and we play the songs and Chuck resonates. He thinks this is fantastic as well. And he says, well, why don't you guys come and do the music at Lonnie's Bible study? We haven't said Chuck's full name yet. This is Chuck Smith. Oh, so Smith, yeah. Yeah, Chuck Smith. Great guy. Love Chuck. Yeah, the past, the pastor still today of Calvary Chapel. Yes. Was, many refer to as Big Calvary. Yeah. And um, he he suggests that we play, he invited us to play at Lonnie's Monday Night Bible Study. So 
we started to play at, at this Bible study. Now you have a preacher that looks like Jesus, which Lonnie did, and a band that looks like Crosby, Stills, and Nash or something. Right. And the, the floodgates opened. Uh, the hippie, the word got out in, in the hippie community that there was this cool Bible study, and uh, it was God's time, too. And the floodgates opened, and the church grew from a couple of hundred in the little chapel to about 2,000 in four months' time. Mm. The media got on board, and they began to do stories about the Jesus movement and the big thing that was happening, the big, huge revival down here in Orange County. Yeah. So our, you know, our band was uh, caught up in the attendant publicity, and we became very popular very quickly. church was swelling so fast that that's when the tent was put up because Chuck couldn't accommodate, we couldn't accommodate the people in the, in the uh, little chapel. And uh, right. I think the tent held what a thousand, I don't know if you were ever there. I can't a thousand or 1500. And uh, we started to meet in the tent till they built the big sanctuary. And um, that was the beginning of what I call the Jesus movement. And then the next big event for us was Expo 72, where, uh, which was a gathering of some people will number it up to a million Christians over the four-day period in Dallas, Texas. And on a Friday night in the Cotton Bowl, we uh, sang for about 100,000 people, and we sang Lend an Ear to a Love Song. sang, uh, Billy Graham got up and spoke. Now, I didn't think too much of that other than I I knew who Billy Graham was, and that was awesome for me, but uh, I talked to people years later that were there, and they said that was a defining moment for them, for the church, that had many people that came, or most of the people that came to this were church people, and to see hippies ministering, and then Billy Graham getting up to speak after the hippies ministered, said a lot to a lot of people, like, kind of in a way... If it's okay with Billy, maybe it's okay with God, you know? Oh, interesting. I, I was not aware it. of that, that part of history. Interesting, okay. Yeah, because up to that point, you know, there was a great deal of suspicion sure. more about our look 
I think, than our music, but combined. And so people are going like, you know, if they cleaned you up on the inside, if God cleaned you up on the inside, why didn't he clean you up on the outside? And, <laughs> right. Well, even you know, at that time, I think uh, Billy was beginning to grow his hair even a little bit longer. I remember being at uh, one of my friend's house, and uh, one of the Billy Graham things was on television, and I remember the mother saying, can you believe how long he's letting his hair get? So, yeah, yeah, right. I, see, I'm not aware of that because I wasn't coming from the church side of things, but I can totally see that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Freaking out. No kidding, she was. Billy Graham's becoming hip again. <laughs> so anyhow, that was like the, that was kind of, then from there on, you know, we got invited to play other places and expanded out and started our traveling ministry. We were only together for about three years. Mm-hmm. We came to the end of that. It was such a ride and it was so phenomenal, the skyrocketing success of the whole thing. The album came out with no um, real promotion or publicity and just sold through the roof. And so the whole thing was really on on the fast track. Now, was uh, the album the first one on the Maranatha label? No, we never were on the Maranatha label. Oh, you weren't? No. What label? always a source of sore point with Chuck Smith, I think. I bet. So what label were you on? Well, we always we had the earliest itch to go secular, you know, which has always been the crossover itch for everybody. Uh, sure. Now they're doing it, but in those days, that was the big desire. Let's go over and minister to the lost. Yeah. I don't want to make music for Christians. Right. So we were first on United Artists Records. There were there were some um, some negotiations before we got saved to sign our band, and uh, so we just signed the Christian band, and we didn't actually. The album was actually, we didn't make it under the auspices of United Artists. Long story, too long to go into right now, but a fellow named Freddie Pirro was interested in our band. He got saved. He formed Good News Records. And then he was responsible for putting together the first Love Song album. And then when he shopped it around, he put it out on United Artists Records. Okay. And I either I think either distributed it or it was actually on the label. I don't remember clearly because it wasn't very long after then he renegotiated he negotiated a deal with word he saw that united artists didn't really know how to service the christian thing they were into the big orders of you know thousands at a time and they didn't know how to deal with five orders from five units from a bookstore yeah right so he went with word and we sold about 30,000 under the 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 united artists thing and then it went over to Word, and in the next year it sold another 70. So it went to 100,000 in a little over a year, hmm. which were huge numbers in those days. And over the life of the album, I think it did about 300,000 units, hmm. which were phenomenal numbers in those days. Nowadays, that's not a, a big deal, but it was then. And um, So anyhow, that, that was all part of the establishing of the success. And, you know, at the end of three years, there was a lot of... We were baby Christians, and there was a lot of infighting and struggling within the group. And uh, so we just prayed one day we just said lord we feel like we should disband so we're going to go ahead and do it and if it's your will you can give us a peace and if it's not you can make us miserable and we felt a peace and went on our separate ways at that point okay and so then what happened uh in your walk during that time well i had already been sort of like part of the problem in the group was we were so crowded we had so much talent and you know everything was happening so fast we didn't have time to make lots of albums we only made two albums and in those days, vinyl, you know, you were limited. You had a certain amount of space you, you could put on the vinyl, you know, maybe 10 songs. And yep. 
So I felt like, gee, I'm, making, I'm writing all this music. So I started a solo project, but it wasn't in my idea to, at that time to break away from the group. It's just I'll have an extra outlet, you know, and I can work out the solo album and put out a solo album and, and still do the group thing. Mm-hmm. But then the group disbanded, so the solo project came out in 1975, and sometimes Alleluia was on there. Sometimes Alleluia Sometimes praise the Lord Sometimes gently singing Our hearts in one Look toward the sky and start to sing Oh, let us now return His love Just let our voices ring Oh, let us feel His presence Let the sound of praises fill the air Oh, let us sing the song of Jesus' love To people everywhere Sometimes all
kind of a hit. We didn't really have a way to measure hits even in 1975 yet, but uh, it, it did become a hit. And it crossed the album over where, where I, it, one of the most difficult things to do, and to a certain degree it still plagues me today, is that it's really hard to break out of a, the fact that you are part of a famous group yeah. and to establish a solo identity. Uh, so that was really good for me, that the album is so well received and today there's a lot of people that don't remember love song that got on board with me as a solo artist and never knew me as a part of a group and then many that did you know yeah it's kind of like the kids you hear the joke the kids say to their parents you know uh, didn't that guy in wings used to be in a band before you know <laughs> so right. so there is a certain group of people that know me as a solo artist but it was a it was a good transition it was a successful transition and then uh, that was 1975 and um started my solo ministry, which has been going ever since. So you were all baby Christians at the time, and, and you, you had the infighting. Do you think that part of that was because you were baby Christians and you weren't yet mature in your faith and, and maybe had to deal with success? or? Yeah, that totally nails it. You know, you, we had a lot of responsibility. People looked up to us as these mighty men of God, and yeah. uh, we really weren't. Right. And, uh, but you're writing these these beautiful, worshipful lyrics. I mean, uh, still, I mean, I, I can pull my whole love song album out and, and worship and love God, and, and the Holy Spirit was definitely in that. And so he gave you some wonderful lyrics. Now, looking at, at the way you wrote lyrics then and the way you write lyrics today, mm-hmm. um, talk about that. I mean, as far as your relationship with God and, and what he's shown you. Uh, I was talking to a guy one time uh, not too long ago who um, had some very early success way back in the founding times of uh, Jesus music, and he said, the man that I am today is so much more mature than who I was then. And I, he said, I have so much to say now to the church. What would you say to the church now? Well, I mean, hopefully that's the case. We all should grow. I mean, if you've been a Christian for 40 years, I hope that you've moved out of uh, the baby stages of your lyrics. And there was even a season where I rejected some of my early lyrics because I got this powerful prophetic album, uh, song for this album that became Name Above All Names. And uh, so there are transitions, you know, hopefully that come through. Um, You know, the, the truth is that I'm kind of, I mean, I I have a church and all that, but I'm kind of disconnected a little bit with the church in general because I have such problems with it. And I mean, it's I go to church. It's not like I I'm a lone ranger, but mm-hmm. I don't know what to say to the church today. You know, it, kind of where I'm at right now lyrically is not so much that I'm speaking to the church, but I'm speaking to people my age. 
um, the songs that I, you know, I, I haven't done really a, a, a real studio album in, since 1991 with players and all that. I've done two worship albums mm-hmm. that were specifically worship content, so that doesn't really count in my opinion. They're just songs that were received in worship and during my season as a worship leader in a church. But the songs that I've been getting lately, lately being the last five or six years, uh, are more for people my age. They're dealing with, uh, you know, situations in marriage and feelings that we have as we get older, and uh, I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's deeper, I don't know. I mean, it, but it certainly uh, comes out of, you know, a lifetime of experiencing God in the hills and the valleys, where I think kind of the music, if, if, if put it this way, the music that we wrote in the early days was more coming out of the hills because we hadn't had a lot of valleys yet. Right, so right. hopefully that's reflected a little bit. And then, of course, it's always going to be defined by the type of writing that people do. You know, you've got your Michael Card and your uh, John Fisher, who are more teachers, and their songs more are like teaching songs. And my stuff is more like kind of visceral, this is where I'm at right now with God and good or bad, take it or leave it. So, you know, hopefully, though, that there's this maturity and depth that comes out right. in whatever way. But, yeah, if, if if you don't grow, I mean, if you just sit back there and, and, and um, kind of recycle what you wrote when you were a baby Christian, I don't think that's that's really valid. As I've always felt that we have this role to be ministers first and not just artists. So, you know, you could an artist could sit there and just write songs out of his imagination, but yeah. I think a Christian should write out of his personal experience and connect viscerally with the things that are really going on in our lives. Yeah. So hopefully that's matured and positive. I can't really evaluate it from my own music, but, you know, like other people could, but that's yeah. my thought. Right, okay. So uh, you've got a new project now. Talk about that a little bit. Well, that was has been a 10-year frustration. Uh, I put out an album in 95-ish called Voice of the Wind. Uh, I had had a revelation of worship in 1990, uh, which is the best way I could put it, where God just gave me this fresh kind of new perspective on worship and going deeper with Him in times of personal worship. I started to introduce a dimension of worship to my concerts that uh, led into this little time in my concert where there'd be just 25, 30 minutes where I'd lead people in worship my way, which was mostly me singing songs I had written, but then maybe bringing them in on a familiar chorus to participate as well. And I thought this would be a great record, but how do I make it? You know, I don't want to go into the studio and stare at the walls and try to pretend that it's, you know, connecting in the same way that you would if you were leading people in worship. So I came up with the idea of recording the original content live and then taking it back in the studio and embellishing it. Well, that's always a dicey proposition because you can make an album where everything sounds glued on. But I think that we really, through prayer and picking the right people and getting everything together correctly, succeeded in making an album that the way I would describe it, that would bring you into a place of connection with God in a very deep and spiritual way, but still be a really good album to listen to musically. Talk to me Talk to me I'm waiting in the morning I wait throughout the day How sweet it is for me to hear All the things you have to say How lovely is the music 
of your heart Talk to me you for forever and forever I will be the one who will always love you and when you are with me how lovely is the music of your heart Talk to me, my love I love to hear your praises I love to hear your praise I long to hold you in my arms at night And draw So anyhow, that became Voice of the Wind, which was very successful and kind of turned my ministry around in a lot of different ways and made people kind of like uh, really enjoy more my the idea that I was coming to town. Oh, yeah, we like Voice of the Wind. Let's have some of that, you know. Cool. Um, so that was good. And, and that original album was sort of the idea I had was to do an, a volume for morning and a volume for evening. Well, when it came to naming them, I thought, well, if I name the thing morning, 
then I'm locked in. And what if I want to do some other content for the next one? So I just named more generically Voice of the Wind. And uh, as it did turn out, though, the second volume, which is the new album, is the evening volume. And in fact, it's called Evening Shadows.
here I am again, drifting on the wind like lovers do. Drifting on the wind, drifting on the wind. Drifting on the wind. You take me, Lord, to heavenly places. I sit at your feet and I worship you, Lord. I sit at your feet for I So the, the, the live material was recorded shortly after the first album was recorded, a couple of years after. And it's just been through all kinds of technical difficulty with the, the different versions of software. Some of, the, some of the recordings that I used were analog and had to be converted to digital. And it's too long to go into right now, but it was a technical nightmare. At one point, I thought I'd have to scrap everything and start over, and uh, we rescued everything. And then early this year, I had a situation where I was able to uh, focus about three months and really finish the thing, and uh, we did, and it's out. So that's uh, a huge thing for me because it clears my table here for moving to my next project, which will be to get some musicians in a studio together. Awesome. Again, which will be fun, yeah. So do you already have the songs uh, picked out for that? Well, I have uh, songs that I've called this album as it's planned now is a bunch of stuff that's been waiting in line to be recorded for years. Mm -hmm. Some of it goes way back to, there's a song or two that were written before I was even a Christian. Wow. And then some more current stuff and... I don't know the shape of the album at this point. Yeah. It's not going to be a concept album. It's going to have a lot of diverse subject matter, but a lot of my albums did. You know, I had like my first album was sort of a theme album and glow in the dark was a little more kind of just a bunch of songs and then written on the wind had more of a concept and then take it easy was more a bunch of songs. So I don't know. It's, it's, I don't know the actual shape of it yet. And mm -hmm. I'll have to, you know, still, even though you can, it's not a really good idea to do more than about 12 songs on a CD. Even for me, if I love an artist, I get kind of bored, you know, I, yeah. I 12 songs is enough. So it may be that I'll, you know, be, I'll have the ability to, taken in a couple of different directions. But for right now, it's going to be, if I was to describe it, it'll be a, an album with varying uh, lyric content that isn't particularly cohesive, but doesn't have to be, uh, but will be more tied together because I'll pull the songs together musically. And uh, really excited about the possibility of where I can go with all the new technology and the different kinds of approach to the way we record today to make a really kind of a cool different album for me that's still enough like you know i can't get away from who i am and right. i don't want to yeah awesome so uh, let's not skip too far ahead though because we do want to talk uh, i mean we want to let people know where they can get your new album which is called again evening shadows current places to get the album will be itunes and many many digital delivery sites and then it will be it we just got ourselves on amazon.com that's also on amazon.com as mp3 downloads mm -hmm. so itunes 
Amazon.com, other digital delivery. We are, are just making a deal with a distribution company now for store distribution. So it will be available in stores, but probably only through ordering it. Mm-hmm. You'll have to go in and say, I want Chuck Gerard's new album, and they'll look it up and go, oh, yeah, we can get that. Okay. Or directly from our website. Which is, this is uh, the coolest thing. Now, this, this is amazing. You have been on the Internet so long that you have right. Chuck.org. I do. <laughs> So let Those me ask you this, Chuck. At, at this point, you, you're an indie artist. You, you're on your own label, correct? Yeah. Uh-huh. So you own all the music in, in terms of all the rights? Yeah, I got, you know, all my old stuff from the 70s is all tied up, and yeah. uh, we're never going to get it back from the looks of it, right. and nobody cares, and I just determined that was never going to happen again. So mm-hmm. since 1980, I've made all my records on my own dime, and I own it all, and yeah, it's that's, great because that's awesome. uh, once an album's paid off, it's complete uh, equity. It's yep. wonderful. Yep. So what I would like to ask is, are you going to be releasing some of the new stuff, some of the new songs to the podcasting community as well? I'm fine with that. I want the music out there, and if podcasts want to use it, I want them to use it. So Awesome. The more people that hear it, obviously, the more people are, are uh, going to buy it. It's Podcasting in a lot, in a lot of ways is uh, you know, r- like radio was back in the 50s and 60s. People are, are yeah, discovering totally, yeah. their music there. And, and you, you sure don't get the kind of... Uh, play on radio today that you used to get then i mean they're so formulaic now and if you don't sound like last week's hit you're not going to get played this week right if you're new i mean uh you just you have to sound like everybody else and uh radio today is dead oh i agree and so and so are record companies i mean it's a yeah. whole new frontier i agree and i'm yeah. totally up for what i love about it is the way i put it is it levels the playing field again for a guy like me because yep. uh two reasons there's no ageism yep. and you don't need to have tons of bucks to do this stuff that's right that's right so you can do it really through very inexpensive means mm-hmm. i mean the charisma ad is old school for me but i haven't done anything like that in like um you know since probably 19 late 1970s mm-hmm. had anything in a commercial ad and it's going to be interesting to see the result from it you know yeah well i hope that you know there's enough people around that that still remember chuck gerard that when they see the ad they'll say oh man i gotta get that uh, i i think that there are you know there's I, i'm just a little bit younger than you but it, there's a lot of us around that mm-hmm. still remember and that's why we're doing this show right now chuck because i there's a lot of people that still remember and that still love the music and they want to know they're interested uh, you know, as to what, you know, you and, and Brian and, and uh, Phil Keggy and some of these other guys are still doing, you know? Right. And so, you know, that's why why we're doing this. And good music is good music, no matter if, if it's, you know, done by an artist that's, you know, 50 or 60 years old or, you know, some young kid at, at 16. And mm-hmm. so I've got a lot of young listeners, too, and I think when they hear the music, they'll say, that's good stuff. Well, sadly, the world is again ahead of us on the curve because some of these older artists are really coming back and rocking the house anymore, and they're not, they're not putting them out to pasture, mm-hmm. and they are for us, you know, mm-hmm. which is a shame. Yeah, yeah. They, they view us, of course, they are almost obsolete, so it's not longer any really a problem anymore because they're over pretty much, so. Yeah, I think they are. It used to matter, you know. Right, well. You know, now you're able to come directly to the listener. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, there's not the middleman. I mean, because I'm certainly not a middleman. I, I'm, a, I'm a listener. I'm a fan. I'm, you mm-hmm. know, I, I've, I've been doing this now for four years, but uh, man, yeah, it's... Uh, you know who you sound like over uh, the phone? Leo Laporte. Oh, <laughs> that's funny that you'd say that. 
He has uh, a great radio voice. Yes. Well, uh, well, thank you. I know Leo's got a great voice, uh, so I consider that uh, a compliment. Uh, Leo and I actually had a conversation about uh, a week and uh, two weeks ago. Uh, wow. We were at a, a expo for podcasters in Las Vegas, and I've mm-hmm. met Leo a couple of times. I've been on his radio show uh, once or twice, and uh, yeah, he's he's a he's quite a guy, and it, it's yeah, actually. He's- knowledgeable guy he very much is and it's actually because of his radio show that i found out about podcasting it was early on it was uh, september of 2004 i was listening to his show and he was talking to this guy about this new technology and the guy that he was talking to had used to be on mtv and uh guy's name was uh, adam curry and adam is one of the guys that uh, yeah okay so adam is one of the guys that invented podcasting Mm -hmm. and uh so you know i I wasn't even thinking about doing anything like that, but uh, back in the late 70s, I, was, uh, I worked for a radio station, a Christian radio station. I wasn't on the air. I was you know, just selling spots. Mm-hmm. And, but I always kind of had that in my blood. I, I only did that for a couple of years because it really didn't pay here in this market where I'm at. And so anyway, so I, I heard this interview, and at the same time, I had been um, asking God if there was more that I could do for him. Uh, he'd been so good to me. He's been so merciful to me. And my, my day job is one that doesn't really engage my brain. And so a lot of times when I'm doing my job, I'm, I'm worshiping God. And I was having this, this one morning of worship with God at work. And I said, Lord, what more can I do for you? I, I, I'm kind of the tech guy at my church. I'm the guy that puts the lyrics up on the screen for people. And I do, you know, some computer graphics and stuff like that. And, and, and he just came back to me almost audibly. He said, proclaim my name. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what do you mean, Lord? Proclaim my name. And he just, again, repeated, proclaim my name. And so I thought that he was talking to me about doing more with my church, with my graphics, with my computer graphics. And so I went home that night, and I'm starting to work and trying to you know, do something that, that just shows the glory of God, and nothing was really coming together. Well, right after that is when I heard that Leo Laporte radio show with Adam Curry. And then about a week later, I'm uh, in a, on a camping trip, a Cub Scout camping trip with my youngest boy. We're in um, Joshua Tree in the desert, and God wakes me up at 2.30 in the morning. And he begins to fill my mind with ideas for this show, for podcasting. And like I said, nobody else was doing a podcast, a Christian podcast, other than, other than just sermons. And God mm-hmm. said, listen, I want to be a part of this brand new medium. You know, the very first mass medium was the printing press. And mm-hmm. the first thing done there was the Gutenberg Bible, and, and God said to me, I want to be a part of this as well. And so oh. he began to fill my mind with w- ideas for this podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, what is so awesome about it, Chuck, is after I put the very first show up on November thirteenth, two 2004, within a week, I had an email from a, guy, from a gal in Detroit. And um, I won't go into the whole email, but God used that, that show to bring her back to himself. She had been a Christian, had fallen away, didn't have anything to do with him. And then because of the show, she said, Steve, I want you to know that, that God used you to bring me back to himself. And then I got another email from a guy in, uh, in Denmark. And he said, Steve, how do I know what's right? He says, I'm reading the Quran. I'm reading the Bible. How do I know what's right? <clears throat> and so I spent the next two or three shows talking about why we believe that the Bible is truth. And, and, and I get emails from people from all over the world. And uh, this is just such an amazing, amazing ministry that God has, you know, given some guy. I'm, I'm, I'm in Riverside, California. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've, I've lived the life that, you know, I, I wasn't brought up in a Christian home, but I, I became a Christian at 17. And um, 
there was a time where I fell away. I wanted to do my own, my own thing. I ended up getting a divorce. And, and man, you know, when a Christian gets divorced, I just felt like God was never, ever going to be able to use me again. But, right. but he's restored me and he's, you know, given me this. And, and so, you know, you know, when, when somebody talks to me about God's grace and God's faithfulness and God's forgiveness, you know, I'm right there. And so, right on. yeah, so God is good. Amen. Say, Chuck, thank you so much for spending time with us on the show, for being a part of LifeSpring, and for sharing your story. Thanks, Steve. It's really been a pleasure to reminisce with you, and uh, I hope that uh, people enjoy this and will benefit from it, from hearing some things about God maybe they didn't know. Yeah. And the best place to find you then is at chuckgerard.com or .org? Uh, com or chuck.org, but, you know, we're encouraging people to go to chuckgerard.com and, um, they'll be, we're, we're starting to develop the website a little bit and get up some more current notices on things that are happening and stay a little more current. So awesome. All things Chuck at chuckgerard.com. <laughs> All things Chuck. Awesome. Thank you, Chuck. And so Chuck, I want to thank you again for being on the LifeSpring show. God bless you, my brother. I hope that the new project does well. Uh, guys, Check it out at chuckgerard.com or chuck.org. It is available at lifespringmedia.com. Just go to lifespringmedia.com and click on the Lifespring store, and you'll see that I've got Chuck's new CD for sale right there. Can you believe that that uh, URL? That is absolutely amazing, chuck.org. Man, I wish I could have steve.com or steve.org. Hey, those of you that have been around for a while know that Carmen Tyler is a friend of mine. She's been a friend of the podcast for a long time now. She's been, she's a podcaster herself. She's a former Miss Louisiana. She's a singer. She's an actress. She is one talented lady. Well, listen to this. Hi, this is Carmen Tyler with the Carmen Cast and the KT Vocal Studio. Have you ever wanted to learn to sing or improve upon your singing ability, but were too embarrassed to go to a vocal coach or teacher? Well, I offer webcam lessons where you can take voice lessons in the privacy of your own home. And right now, if you let me know that you heard my advertisement on LiveSpring, you will get 25% off each lesson when you purchase two lessons at one time. That's two one-hour lessons for $75. All you need is an internet connection and a good web camera. For more information on me and my studio, simply go to studio.carmentyler.com. That's studio.carmentyler.com, or leave me a message at 206-337-1578. As I said, Carmen is a friend of mine, and I have to tell you from personal experience that Carmen is one of the nicest people you'll ever want to meet. So if you want some help with your singing, take her up on that offer. It's a great deal. And before we get out of here, I just want to, again, thank CovenantEyes.com for their sponsorship of the show. They've been with the show for several months now. And I really want to encourage you, if you struggle with some of the temptations that are out there on the Internet, Covenant Eyes can really be an ally to you. So check them out at CovenantEyes.com. And when you use the promo code LIFESPRING, you'll get a free 30-day trial. Try before you buy. That's a great way to do business. And now, since I've kept you here for quite a long time, I'll let you get out of here. But before I do, I just want to say thank you so much for your support. Thank you for being there. And thanks most of all to God. These four years have been the most eventful of my life. Uh, they've brought me more changes and they've brought me more friends than I could ever imagine. You truly are a part of my extended family in words cannot express 
how much it means to me that you're there. So thank you so very much for listening to the show and for listening to the other shows. If you do, if you don't listen to the other LifeSpring shows, I encourage you to check them out. We've got some good shows. I just finished up the video series with Striper's Kenny Metcalf over at LifeSpring.tv. Check those out. LifeSpring Hymn Stories, LifeSpring's In Touch with God's Character, the LifeSpring Weekend Music Show, and on and on and on. These have been an unbelievable four years. Man, it wouldn't have happened without you. So again, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Hey, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at steve.lifespring at gmail.com or you can call in toll-free at 877-433-9091. So until next time, may God bless you richly. I'm Steve Webb. Your business, my voice. stevewebvoiceovers.com